Welcome all. This is the fourth and final talk of this Tech Freedom Policy Summit. Once again, I am Corbin Barthold, Internet Policy Council here at Tech Freedom. Um, I also happen to be the host of the Tech Policy Podcast. And this is uh, doubling as the special live thing of the show. I'm pleased and honored to be joined by Quinta Jurassic. She's a fellow at the Brookings Institution, a senior editor at Lawfare, a contributing writer at The Atlantic, and more, as if that weren't already enough. Uh, two major themes of this event have been, first, the decline of trust in experts and institutions, and second, a concomitant rise in populism, demagoguery, and extremism. Behind both of these themes lies the disconcerting possibility that the internet is helping drive this recrudescence or renaissance of what Philip Roth called indigenous American berserk. Quinta and I are going to close things out by looking at these subjects through the lens of the January 6th hearings, the interplay between extremist groups and social media, and some of the emerging and disturbingly asymmetric threats to democracy. Quinta. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for being here. Um, let's just dive right in and start with the January 6th hearings. Um, incredibly important and informative event in, I would say, the history of American society and governance. And yet at the same time, uh, I have kids and I don't get a lot of sleep and I've got a job. And so I think I'm like a lot of Americans where I'm like, oh man, I should be watching some of that. And uh, you know, I've, I've got a life to lead. So if you could start by giving us, and this is such a mean way to start a brief recap and well, you know, what is going on there and, and why does it matter? Sure. Absolutely. It's a, it's an easy question. Good. Um, <laughs> in, in all seriousness, um, what the committee I think has been doing with, I would argue pretty astonishing effectiveness is setting out what it has found about January 6th over the course of its investigation. This is kind of a midway point. We're still expecting a final report sometime in the fall before they wrap up their work in January. Um, they have uncovered an enormous amount of new material, more than I certainly expected at the beginning. Um, and what I think they've been able to do really effectively is pull out a couple themes. I would argue about uh, President Trump's personal culpability. So First, um, I think, you know, it's often a question, how, how much was he involved? What did he know and when did he know it? To quote the, the old Watergate canard. I think it's very clear from their investigation that this is uh, efforts to overturn the election were something that Trump was involved in at every stage. Uh, people told him no again and again, and he kept pushing forward um, to try to block the counting of votes, uh, to overturn the counting of votes, to block the certification of the electoral vote, and finally to incite the riot itself. Um, second, I think there's there's also the question, which is related to that, of Trump's personal criminal culpability. If you had asked me a month or two ago, you know, do I think that Trump broke the law um, around January 6th and the run-up and on the day itself, I would have said, I'm not sure. Now it seems, I think, abundantly clear that the, the degree of personal involvement um, rises to the level of what I would certainly comfortably call incitement under the law um, and potentially other crimes as well involving obstruction of Congress, efforts to block the certification of the electoral vote, and so on. So I think the committee has been extraordinarily effective in kind of sketching that portrait um, bringing new information to light, really driving home just how unbelievably dangerous January 6th was, and also, you know, how the danger that something similar may happen in the future if this kind of conduct isn't stopped. So there are some threads in there that are very interesting about uh, criminal justice and the interplay of sort of politics and law as they relate to the discrete actions of Donald Trump that are... Um, worth diving into, but kind of not uh, the direct uh, aspect of this event. I mean, I, what is actually more interesting to me, and as the hearing cover this, um, for present purposes, I should clarify, um, we know there's this force at the top doing the top-down misinformation and actions. Um, to what degree have we learned about the bottom-up role of social media or the internet or online organization 
um, leading up to January 6th? It's a great question. It's actually something that I, I'm surprised the committee hasn't done more on. Um, initially, uh, I think uh, uh, listeners might know there, there have been reports about the committee uh, reaching out to folks, wanting to know uh, what the role of tech platforms might have been about bottom-up organizing, as you say. They've really been very focused on the actions of Trump himself and the people around him. And I think that that is a intentional decision by, by them to kind of keep the focus. That said, it's absolutely true that the role of the internet, the role of this kind of bottom-up organizing enabled by the connectivity um, of, you know, many, many platforms is something that has kind of permeated the discussion that the committee has been having at every stage. So, for example, um, I think that the most explicit manifestation of this was in the most recent hearing. They actually featured um, anonymized testimony from a former Twitter employee uh, saying that they had essentially tried to warn others at the platform if they did not take away Trump's Twitter access that violence might result on January 6th. Obviously, the platform didn't step in, and we we all know what happened. It's a little hard to evaluate that testimony without knowing, you know, who this person is, what their role was at Twitter, what other kinds of internal conversations um, there were. But I think that kind of brought to the fore this question of what role do social media platforms, what role did the internet have? Another manifestation of that that we saw was actually in the committee's discussion of the Trump campaigns kind of blasting out misinformation about the election to its followers. So uh, they pointed to the really just relentless drumbeat on the part of the campaign of saying, you know, these are falsehoods, these are, you know, the, the, the election was stolen. Um, to uh, people who had donated to that campaign, blasting them out across the web and and sort of pointing to that as a way that uh, the campaign was able to spin this narrative of a stolen election and really uh, build that into people's conceptions of what was going on. That being said, even though I do think that this is an unbelievably important component of how we should understand the insurrection, it hasn't really been at the focus of what the committee has been doing. So I applaud you in a lot of your work on the um, covering the hearings. You have been the person making the case for, I might call it, sincerity and lack of cynicism, <laughs> if, if that works. It's saying, you know what, these are actually important. They matter. Good work is being done. Um, and I'm, I'm so glad somebody is doing that, which, of course, is my nice intro to now push back and be the cynical person. Um, so... You, you actually did a, a, a podcast. I recommend the, the Lawfare podcast, the title of which was the most intense online disinformation event in American history. And what was really funny about that is when I dove in and listened to it, I realized it was about the lead up to the election itself. So it was the most until like a month later when the post-election then beat the record. Um, so if that kind of operation can lead a huge portion of a single party to, um, I forget the exact percentages, but believe, you know, an election was stolen. And in my naiveness, like, I, I, I would never have guessed that you could rock the polls on a question like that, that drastically, that quickly. There's, there's a lot going on there. But a lot of those same forces are now at play against the committee itself. Um, I actually will, will quote you, the committee has presented Trump and his campaign's approach to selling the big lies, essentially a project of spamming drowning out the facts of what really happened and the possibility of understanding the truth with an understanding that truth with an endless barrage of falsehoods. I mean, that's exactly what they're doing with the committee, right? So, um, you know, I, I guess my question is, how firm are you in that optimism? I mean, it, it isn't the exact same playbook likely to, you know, have kind of similar results? So first off, I want to give a shout out to uh, Jacob Schultz, who just recently left us as Lawfare's managing editor. He brought to, to my attention that point about spam, and I think it's a really important one. Um, I, I think, you know, when it comes to this, this question of, of optimism, I've, I've seen passed around a lot the, the quote recently from uh, Gramsci, uh, pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will, <laughs> right? Um, I would say that my, my optimism about this is, is less... Uh, complacency or a belief that, you know, everything is going to turn out okay, and more an insistence that it's only going to matter if we, meaning 
journalists, the American people, the committee uh, force it into mattering and insist that it does matter. I do think that the committee has really done an astonishing job at making that case. I mean, I'm blown away. I think when when they started, I was certainly with a group of people saying, you know, they're going to be facing this barrage from, from Trump. They're going to be facing, you know, an avalanche of tweets. They're going to be dealing with uh, misinformation coming out every night from Fox, OANN, Newsmax. You know, how are they possibly going to break through that? Um, especially if you compare it to the Watergate hearings, which is sort of, you know, a television event that really captivated the country. But of course, that predates uh you know, the enormous amount of different avenues of information that we now have um, that's sort of less possible to tell a single national story. Um, that said, I think they have done an extraordinarily good job um, really in making the hearings into kind of a, a media event. <laughs> um, they've hired a former president of ABC News to sort of help them build this as a uh, you know, a television series. Uh, if you read news coverage of it, you'll see reporters noting, you know, there's a there's a clear narrative in every every episode, so to speak. Uh, there are clear heroes and villains. There's there's a, a arc of the story. You'll see that they do sort of little teasers at the end. You know, next week on Insurrection, here's what we're going to show. And I think it's it's easy to laugh at that and make fun of that as sort of you know how how terrible it is that we have this issue that goes straight to the heart of the strength of our democracy and the committee needs to turn it into entertainment for people to pay attention. On the other hand, you know, I don't think that thinking about the medium along with the message is necessarily a bad thing. They do seem to be breaking through. Um, we don't, I don't think we have firm evidence from, you know, polling about whether they've changed people's minds, but there's some really interesting reporting about uh, Trump's own perspective where Maggie Haberman at the New York Times has reported he's angry that nobody is up there to defend him in front of the committee. He feels like because of Good work, things, Kevin, Kevin McCarthy. Exactly. Well right. Um, there, you know, there, there aren't pro-Trump Republicans on the panel. Um, the committee has been very careful in only bringing live witnesses who are friendly. You know, they're not uh, Stuart Rhodes, the leader of the Oath Keepers, offered to show up in person. I, I think they, they did not go for that one for a good reason. Um, and so they've been very successful in sort of putting forward this tightly scripted, engaging narrative that Trump doesn't really have a clear counter to because, in part, he's banned from Twitter. You can, you know, he he posts on Truth Social and you can see his his posts on his website, but he doesn't really have an effective counter. And so, you know, I think it's too early now to say the committee has been effective in all the ways we would want it to be effective. But I think that the signs are much better than I would have expected. Your answer is actually very, uh, it ties into an earlier panel. Uh, FTC Commissioner Noah Phillips and I were, were talking about um, how do you make people interested in um, you know, sort of the nuts and bolts of good governance instead of whatever is the clickbaity outrage thing of, of the moment. And I think actually it's like, well, the committee is meeting the culture where it is. And there's a lot to be said for that. And there's actually a weird parallel here. Um, I, uh, after they made news up in Idaho, I'd never heard of Patriot Front, white supremacist group. And I was just digging around like, who are these crazy people going on the internet? Like their website is slick. Like their videos are slick. Like they've clearly put a media game together. And so um, if, and one of the themes I, you know, mentioned or alluded to in the intro is the, the asymmetry here of uh, if that's the game one side is playing, well then, you know, it, it actually behooves you to be slick in return. And, and I, I think maybe there's a, like a sense that there's a certain gaucheness to that. Maybe we just have to kind of let go of it. I, I don't know. I think I think there's something there's really is something to that. I mean, I will say I've been, you know, focused on Trump scandals for a long time now. And if you compare what the committee is doing to, uh, you know, the the media environment around the Mueller report, I think the difference is astonishing. So I, I don't know how many people here watched the Mueller hearing, but it was eight hours of Mueller, who is not, you know, a particularly charismatic speaker. 
sitting before Congress and essentially answering well, it's yes a bit or like no. Like Sam the Eagle, you know, the, right. the blue eagle on the Muppets. So there, there's an appeal to that, right? Um, but maybe not riveting television for hour after hour after hour. And I do think that the there is a sort of a bit of a lessons learned that we might be seeing in how the committee has taken care to fashion a message. At the same time, you're absolutely right. I think that you know we we think about packaging the a message as a sign of of inauthenticity i was thinking while watching the hearings uh, uh the novelist david foster wallace has this great argument in an essay called um e unibus plurum so out of this out of one many um arguing that television is a sort of inherently cynical and ironic medium because it presents a visual alongside language. This was back in the 90s of like, yes. <laughs> kill your television bumper stickers. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, he was ahead of the curve. <laughs> but so, so I think the question then is, you know, can we look at television and can we look at this sort of slick presentation as a tool for good? Um, and I don't know the answer to that, but the committee is certainly trying. So you're talking about proliferating information. I, it was interesting right in there, you you took a pretty firm stance on the topic of um, is banning Trump from Twitter effectives? That that was interesting. Um, maybe you can talk on that more in, in response to what I'm saying or, or let it slide. But um, we've been very focused on what can you say on Twitter? What can you say on Facebook? And for the topic of extremism and the internet, I think, um, that just seems very limited to me at this point. You, uh, I'll go to another Lawfare podcast. It was with Brian Fishman, and he said, you know, if you're a would-be domestic terrorist, you're going to use one platform to host content, another platform to develop an audience, another for secure communications, another for financing, another to gather information about whether you're going to attack. Um, I forget. Uh, it's depressing that like there's so many of these shootings that I forget specifically which one it was that he did all this stuff. He had no Facebook account. He just he popped onto Facebook to live feed the shooting. It was like his first appearance and made it very difficult for Facebook because it was not some guy with a history where it's like, oh, this guy might be it's not like it was like his first post. Um, so this is a much broader problem that just discussions of content moderation are you're not you're not getting at the full um picture. So do you have thoughts on, you know, the, the the devil of a problem this is and what kind of approach we should be taking? Yeah, so that, that podcast that you're referencing with, uh, with Brian Fishman, that was uh, right after the Buffalo shooting. Um, so I think his his point is important and sobering, as you say. You know, it's not enough. I think that members of Congress, for example, often will focus on one particular platform or you know the, a suite of big platforms, right? Twitter, Facebook, Google, um, and ignore the fact that this is an entire ecosystem. Um, as as Brian pointed out, I think that you know this is an environment where the the Buffalo shooter, for example, it was really hard for even just looking at things after the fact for platforms to work together to take down uh, the live stream of the the shooting um, before Twitch removed it, but the the video clips circulated as well as the shooter's manifesto, precisely because they were spread all over the internet. Um, you know, we now have uh, the the GIFCT collaborating um, more and more post Christchurch to you know work together to hash this kind of material to take it down across the big platforms. But one of the things that you saw, and there's been reporting on this, is that the the video and the manifesto um, kept popping up on websites that were not big platforms that were you know little file sharing services that aren't part of GIFCT, um, and that makes it extraordinarily difficult as a problem. I do think that there's you know often a temptation to say, nerd harder, right? Sure, surely you can figure this out if you only do enough math. Um, and I think what, what Brian's point is, um, and I definitely recommend that people take a listen to that podcast because I thought it was a really good and sobering discussion is that at a certain point, you know, you've mathed all the math you can math and you, you end up with this unbelievably difficult policy problem. That doesn't mean that we can't do better um, but it does mean that, you know, the steps that need to be taken are often not very clear and are just really mechanically hard. An ongoing hot topic is when we see radicalism online um, on, you know, the alternative platforms where it's very easy to find these days. Um, are we seeing correlation or are we seeing causation? Um, are we just being exposed to uh, extremism that was already there, 
or are we watching it fester as a result of new online communication? And um, I, I think it's pretty clear. There's not some definitive answer. We're still hashing it out. Um, but do you have thoughts on it? And and I, I think, do you think it's resolvable or are we just kind of stuck? I mean, is that just going to be beyond our ken to figure out? Right. I mean, I think it's hard because it's it's totally non-falsifiable, right? There's yeah. no there's no alternative universe that we can look at and say in a world without 4chan, right? What what do things look like? I think the counterexample that I often think of when pondering through this question is if you recall, you know, very early in uh, the 2016 election, I, I want to say the the summer of 2016, around the time when. Uh, you know, broader public audience was sort of first being exposed to a lot of the far right online communities that were very supportive of Trump. Um, you may remember Hillary Clinton uh, put out an explainer on her website about Pepe the Frog. <laughs> that, that was a real landmark moment in American politics. Um, I think there was a lot of anxiety, reasonably so, to be clear, about these communities and what they meant. And that uh, in some cases became transformed into these communities are what created Trump, these communities are what is driving his popularity and what elected them. I think if you go back and look at a lot of that writing now, and I, I shouldn't let myself off the hook here, um, I think I wrote some of that as well, it, I don't think it really holds up. Um, you know, that there certainly there were vile people who were hanging out in vile corners of the internet who were very enthusiastic about uh, Trump's campaign, but that's a completely separate thing from what actually got him elected. And I think it's it's maybe easy to focus on what, you know, what you're looking at when you turn over the rock, um, as opposed to everything else that's in plain sight around the rock. Now, again, I, I don't want to, you know, let us off the hook here in the other direction either. I do think that there are serious questions about the extent to which you know, the ability of people to easily connect with one another um, can obviously be used by people to, you know, turn in, in bad directions as, as well as good ones. If we're talking about the Buffalo shooter, um, the speed with which that manifesto spread, the fact that it referenced other uh, far-right extremist manifestos um, from across the globe is, is also, you know, I think a, a great argument for the danger of that kind of connectivity, which, as, as we've said, you know, platforms have tried to add some friction into, but, but can't completely stop. Um, it's really, really hard to say. And so I do think that, you know, your question gets to something important. In a way, are we just going around in circles here? Um, maybe so. I mean, I do, I have come to think that at the end of the day, the question is really uh, one of human nature. Um, and perhaps it's easier for policymakers to frame this as a question of the internet rather than of human nature, because if you ask, well, what can Congress do about human nature? The answer is not very much. Well, and, uh, you know, to give, I guess, a word for the devil, it's a lot easier to say, um, look at these platforms where people can talk to each other and rile each other up and to say, uh, you know, what did we do to lose people's trust or, uh, you know, and I, so like any complex phenomenon, it's, it's, it is very unlikely to be unicausal. And if you and I were to pick apart, you know, the 10 different factors, it's like, well, the answer is all of the above. And we're debating over like how much of each one. Um, and a similar, a similar one like that, another hot dispute is, you know, is it effective to um, deplatform radicals from the mainstream platforms? And I, the way I've always put it is, I don't actually, I care about the answer to that question, but I don't care about it in connection to whether the platform should be allowed to do it. I'm very a firm believer in the notion that mainstream platforms have a right to say, well, not on our watch. Like it's not going to happen because we sat here and allowed it. Um, and they have the right to make that decision. But the question is, as you know, the sort of counter talking point, at least, is you're just pushing people into their little holes where they're going to write, you know, it's an echo chamber and you're just sort of, um, distilling the radicalization instead of exposing it to alternative views. Um, so what, what about that one? You know, the, the great and, and maybe frustrating thing about some of these questions is that they have empirical answers, right? These are things that we can study. And there's been a lot of really interesting studies that you, you've started to see come out over the last few years as platforms have become you know, more aggressive in uh, taking that opportunity to, to kick people off their platforms to, to take a look and say, 
was this effective? You know, did it just radicalize people further? Did it help clean up conversation on the main platform? So I took a look at this uh, back when, I can't remember quite when it was, it might've been six months or so after Trump was, was banned from Twitter and Facebook after the insurrection. Um, and generally speaking, I think the academic work suggests that banning people from these platforms is effective in that it kind of uh, cleans up the conversation, so to speak, on those platforms. So, so one example uh, that there's been studies of is Reddit's action in banning various uh, really noxious forums, uh, racist forums. There's one that's very pleasantly called uh, Our Fat People Hate, so you can guess what that one is like. Um, and essentially the question is, okay, you know, we got rid of these forums. Did the people who were on those forums continue to post elsewhere on Reddit? You know, were they as vile in those other posts? Did you just kind of shunt them from one place to the other? Um, generally speaking, if I'm remembering the study correctly, um, it did succeed in, in driving those folks off Reddit and the people who were still on Reddit were not quite as nasty um, in the other communities in which they were involved. There's also been studies of uh, what happened after Reddit banned the separate R the Donald, which had become sort of a real cesspool of right-wing extremism. Uh, so there was briefly a, another website that uh, was created as a kind of refuge uh, from, from folks from that subreddit um, called the Donald.win. And so again, you can kind of look at what are the conversations like, you know, if you compare them across these, the subreddit and this new website, generally, again, um, there were fewer people, I think, on the Donald.win. Um, so, you know, that that's a success. There were some questions about, you know, are the folks on the Donald.win, are they becoming more radical? in their beliefs. And if I'm remembering correctly, uh, there were some questions about whether that was the case. And this is something that, you know, we we kind of know about a little bit already because there, there has been research on this from uh, researchers who focused on uh, Islamist extremists when, you know, the first time we were having this argument about banning folks from these major platforms um, around the rise of ISIS, you know, what happens if you kick people off Twitter? Does that disrupt the network? Again, the answer seems to be generally yes. And the kind of workarounds that uh, ISIS propagandists found to stay on Twitter, like creating a lot of new accounts, locking their accounts, um, essentially made their propaganda less effective because Twitter couldn't find it, but neither could anyone else. Um, on the other hand, it does seem like, you know, for some people that did sort of drive them farther into the corner that they'd already headed into. So I don't think there's a clear answer, but I do think it's notable that, you know, the academic work that we've seen so far suggests that at least in some ways, that kind of deplatforming can actually be effective. Yeah. One other I'll throw in there. I, I do know when um, Alex Jones was Booted, they found that that was effective in getting people to stop talking about, um, you know, crisis actors at Sandy Hook on Twitter. Um, th that's a great answer and very informed. The tough thing, because, not because anybody can um, answer this, to be clear, this is what makes it just unanswerable, is we live in a dynamic world, right? Um, the Each player gets a turn. So even if you're effective today at cleaning up this platform and that platform, there are motivated actors who will find a new way to um, go somewhere that uh, welcomes them or to come up with a new form of communication. And that is my segue into talking about what I would probably call a problem from hell, which is Steve Bannon. Um, his war room show is extraordinarily popular. Um, and the thing that I find frustrating about him is the thing that he's so brilliant at, which is it's all just so asymmetrical. Um, it kind of reminds me to use a weird litigation analogy of how sometimes it was actually easier to litigate against a really good attorney who, um, you know, they're going to be really smart. They're not going to miss anything, but they're going to have a brief that has like three arguments. They're going to be like, here's one, here's the other, and here's the third. And it's like, they're going to be really good, but like, that's what I'm addressing. Okay. Like I've got my task set for me. And we know Bannon's uh, famous phrase about what he wants to do with the zone and what he wants to flood it with. And that's, you know, so sometimes you have the lawyer who just throws everything at the wall and you're actually kind of on the mercy of the good judgment of the judge at that point. Um, because the limited nature of reality and word limits and time and effort being what it is, I think it's been said, you know, it takes 10 times more effort to um, 
you know, counter BS than to come up with it. And he's the ultimate BS machine. Um, at the same time, it's clear you, you just have to admit from his success, he's tapping into something very real in people's minds. And, you know, uh, there's plenty of people who are uh, ranting on the sidewalk who don't get followings like that. So he's doing something right by his lights. Um, we are in a situation, we are a open society. We have a first amendment. We cannot engage in, I'm gonna butcher the German, but you know, the straight bear democracy where it's like, no, we're suspending the rules because you're so good at sort of using our own system against us that we're gonna like take these emergency measures. So, ah, you know, what do you, this is an, an, I'm throwing this at you. Like, what do you do with that? Feel free to just riff on it. But like, wh wh how do we address that? What do we do? Right. There, there's another easy question. Oh, good. <laughs> um, oh, fantastic. <laughs> um, in, in all seriousness, I do think that, uh, you know, I like the litigation analogy a lot, actually, because one thing I've been spending some time doing recently is looking at uh, some of the wild and crazy litigation filed by Trump campaign and pro-Trump attorneys after the oh, 2020 yeah. election. Oh, closer to the issue than I thought. Yes, yes. Yeah, correct. yeah. So, uh, and what you see is, you know, they, in the, for example, Sidney Powell's Kraken cases, they file these briefs that are just, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages of affidavits that are essentially, you know, I saw a guy with a bag walk into a building. Um, and then the, the poor judge ends up having to sort through that. And you can really see how the judges just become unbelievably frustrated that they have to sort through, you know, all of this garbage, essentially. On the, on the other hand, or maybe not on the other hand, but, you know, uh, to look at the legal system from a different angle, you know, we're talking about Steve Bannon, uh, you know, as we're, we're talking today, the, the Steve Bannon trial for contempt of Congress is, is getting moving. Uh, they're, they're seating a jury, they're beginning opening arguments, and this, for listeners who may not have followed closely, relates to Bannon's refusal to comply with subpoenas sent by the January 6th committee, um, essentially saying that basically he didn't have to. <laughs> uh, and He basically thought it was optional, uh, is his defense. <laughs> At least Essentially, in terms of the timing. Yes, yes. Um, and he, he, you know, said very proudly on his show that uh, Nancy Pelosi was going to find that this would be the misdemeanor prosecution from hell. And he was going to use it to, you know, rip into the committee. Um, so far, it, it may be the misdemeanor prosecution for hell, but that would be for Steve Bannon, not for not for anyone else. You know, he's he's not been allowed to uh, haul Nancy Pelosi into the courtroom or anything that he would like. A lot of his defenses have been limited so far. You know, he's been pretty subdued in in court. So I actually do think that it is a really interesting example of the legal system kind of coming up against uh, this cascade of of garbage. Um, you know, Bannon's podcast and the things he said on his podcast are part of the case against him that he essentially went on the show and saying, you know, no way I'm complying with this subpoena. Uh, that's not great evidence to have introduced against you. I don't want to, you know, give the the legal system too many accolades. Obviously, it's it's far from perfect. Um, and, and I think there are a lot of complaints, you know, when it comes to, for example, the 2020 election litigation uh, that legal discipline has moved far too slowly um, in disciplining a lot of the lawyers who were involved in those cases. At the same time, I do think it is notable that, you know, for all of Bannon's bombast, we do now have this moment where, you know, he's sitting masked in a courtroom, sort of at the at the mercy of the, the judge and the jury. And so it will be very interesting to see what comes of that um, and, and how he responds. But it does strike me as sort of a an interesting confrontation between the you know, two different immovable objects, so to speak. Yeah, in my experience, the legal system, um, it only has two settings. Um, totally ineffective slap on the wrist and cannonball to your face. Um, you know, there's lots of tax protesters, right? These people go around and say that because like you didn't have the frills right on the flag in the courtroom, that means like you don't have jurisdiction or whatever. And it's a whole thing. And um, I, I, you know, a lot of the time what will happen is they'll get away with it and they'll get away with it and they'll misbehave and they'll miss deadlines and they'll, they'll basically thumb their nose at the legal system until something will happen where they're put on trial for some misdemeanor where they're facing like six weeks and they'll try to tamper with a juror. And then the feds will come after them and they spend eight years in prison. 
Um, that's just an aside that one way these things can happen is some of these people, um, they thumb their nose and they thumb their nose and they thumb their nose. And then, um, you know, it's hard to podcast from prison. Um, that said, uh, so, so that's just one possibility. At the same time, though, so you're right, he gets brought into court and it's not his circus arena anymore, but he leaves the court and it sure is once again. And there's going to be this tale, um, never mind that it was a Trump appointed judge, you know, they're all in on it is the whole thing. That's true with the election. And um, Ben Collins of NBC News was very good about this. I mean, I'm sure it's a commonly made point, but the problem with conspiracy theories is they have better stories than reality. Um, and, you know, I don't want to be overly uh, Snyder snarky in talking about the, the crisis of meaning for a lot of people in the country. and where if um, you are suffering from the worst aspects of our sort of increasing uh, bowling alone effect and religious institutions and civic institutions and government institutions all are kind of letting you down and family is disintegrating and you are looking for meaning, somebody on 4chan with a story that strikes me as totally bonkers may nonetheless be very coherent and meaningful to you. Uh, especially if, you know, you're not experienced enough in the world to find it utterly implausible that like a Trump appointed judge is like in the bag for some big conspiracy. Um, so that's all just very bleak. I, you know, the problem just seems so decentralized and at such a deeper level than any of the sort of technology and stuff that we're dealing with where it's like, it's a, it's almost like a spiritual crisis. And we're just sitting here being like, darn, that's really rough. What are we going to do? I think that's right. I mean, I think it it reminds me of a lot of what you saw, you know, during the early COVID period when people were in much greater isolation when they were today, where there was a lot of attraction to uh, to QAnon, you know, to various COVID conspiracy theories. In part, it seems because, you know, people were alone. They were looking for connection. They were looking for someone to explain to them what was going on in a very, you know, unhappy and and difficult world. And I do think that it's possible to understand that and have sympathy and compassion for that without letting anyone off the hook. I mean, I will say to to go back to the what the January 6th committee has been doing, one thing that I think they've been trying to do, I think it's effective, we'll see if it's actually effective, um, is extending a hand in that way to folks who have been caught up in these conspiracy theories. So uh, one of the witnesses at the most recent hearing was someone who uh, was a, a Trump supporter, um, came to believe in the big lie, um, you know, caught a ride with a friend from where he lived, um, I think in the Midwest to DC, you know, was at the Capitol. Uh, has been charged um, uh, criminally, and he was saying essentially, you know, I I now see that I was I was scammed essentially. You know, um, I was made to believe this. It, it was not true. I regret it enormously. Um, I should not have believed that. And you know, sort of putting this person on display to say like this is this is not a happy story, and this is someone who feels ripped off, essentially. I think, you know, to, to go back to what uh, I was saying before about the way the committee has focused on the Trump campaign's use of, of the internet and even of campaign email to spread the big lie, um, I think the uh, Zoe Lofgren, who's a representative on the committee, used the the phrase uh, "the big rip off." That's um, such a great way to frame it, right? And and I think it, you know, the idea, as far as I understand it, is that you know it is not attacking the people who believed this on the ground level, but saying you, you were scammed. Um, you know, you had a reasonable desire to believe in something, to make sense of the world in the way that we all do. And the Trump campaign took advantage of that and, you know, stole from you in, in some sense, pulled the wool over your eyes, whatever you want to say, you know, left you holding the bag. Um, that strikes me as a really interesting message for the committee to try to put forward. Um, nothing we'll says, see if it works. Nothing's this false prophet, like wearing three collared shirts at the same time. Um, I, so you mentioned, um, the pandemic and that, that ties into an amazing article you wrote, um, for the Atlantic called the great rage, um, which it gets it. I, I love it when there's an, a, a piece that. As you read it, it's so straightforward and kind of obvious, but 
before you read it, it was this nebulous thing in your mind that was not concrete and was just kind of there in the background. I think that's that's a that's that's a sign of a really well done article. And that did this where I, certainly with my wife and and there's all this talk of just everybody's a little everybody's a little weird. Have you noticed that? Like, no, I'm not. Forget the all online extremists. We've just been talking like like everybody. And it's showing up in statistics, and your article gets into that a bit, of just that there is a rise of harassment. There is a rise of anxiety and aggravation and like public outbursts and people misbehaving. Uh, you write, the ties of basic decency holding American civic life together have become seriously frayed. Um, we have the rise of threats and intimidation toward healthcare workers, towards teachers, towards airline workers. You write, and this is so true, videos of Americans throwing fits because they won't put on a mask have at this point become their own genre. There's a whole genre of like air, air, airplane, like live flight fist fights. Um, and going along with that is an upshot, or uh, sorry, an up, a rise upward of um, all of our debates toward a national level. Everything needs to be politicized at a national level. Um, you're right, political scientists have written about the increasing nationalization of American politics, the extent to which national politics shapes local outcomes and citizens tend to express uh, more interest in national political disputes over local ones, sorry, and citizens tend to do that. Um, so, I mean, fantastic article, could you please, um, you know, I, I think I've summarized pretty well, but if you need further, go ahead and then just, you know, what's, what's going on? Well, thanks. You're, you're very kind. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that part of what I was trying to put my finger on is that I think there's an increase in rage around politics, but also just generally. One of the examples that really struck me, and this is from a New York Times report, was of a, a man, an adult man who threw a fit in a grocery store aisle because the store didn't have the kind of cheese that he wanted. Um, so that may be connected to politics, but it, not directly, perhaps. Um, so I think that, you know, a lot of it is COVID isolation. Everyone is on edge. Um, but you do see this sort of increasing uh, nationalization of politics and creep of politics into everything. And COVID makes that very immediate. Um, you know, I, I uh, interviewed recently a couple of emergency room physicians who, you know, are struggling with how to deal with uh, COVID misinformation. And one of the things that they said is that it's really hard to strike up a rapport with a patient, which you need to do quickly if you're in an emergency room, because you have a lot of people coming through. Um, if, you know, for example, you come out, you're wearing a mask, the patient's not wearing a mask, and then the well is immediately poisoned because, you know, if they don't believe in masking right, right away, they don't trust you, whatever their complaint is. And I do think that there's, you know, an extent to which sort of masking makes immediately visible uh, disagreements um, about, you know, political affiliation, about if you want to take it up an abstract level, you know, care for one another, how we understand our, our role um, as, you know, mutual participants in a society, it just becomes immediately visible. Um, and you see that too in, you know, the harassment of healthcare workers, again, when it comes to, to questions of masking, of, of vaccination. Recently, of course, there's been a lot of stories about harassment of uh, librarians at schools and, and elsewhere um, because, you know, people who are angry that libraries are, are carrying certain books, you know, to do critical race theory or what they think is critical race theory or, or so on. Um, so there, there's an extent to which because national politics has become so polarized and because it's polarized asymmetrically and what one party has become increasingly extreme, um, you, you see this take manifestations in terms of interpersonal conflict and, and harassment. Um, and that I think is a, a very dangerous thing. Um, one thing that really struck me while researching and writing that piece is that, you know, a lot of the stories you hear uh, from people who are the subjects of this harassment, so, you know, healthcare workers, local health commissioners who have quit their jobs because they don't want to deal with that kind of harassment, you know, librarians who have left, election workers, the stories they tell, the sort of cadence of them sounds really familiar with uh, a genre of kind of 
internet harassment that well predates Trump, you know, of often, often women, um, often people of color who, you know, experience horrific online abuse, uh, struggled to get the police to take it seriously, you know, ended up stepping back from whatever role they had because of that. And now, you know, you, you read these stories from election workers and so on who have very similar stories of, you know, people, people came after me for essentially no reason. I was deluged with threats. They're piling up in my email, you know, people showed up outside of my house. Um, and what struck me is that, you know, again, this is a tendency that has always been there. Um, but it's moved from something that was perhaps more on the periphery to a major part of civic life. And I think it's fair to say a political tactic um, on the part of one political party. Yeah, yeah. So um, I've gone back and forth. I have this ambivalence. You have a great uh, one where in the article somebody says, um, this is America. I don't have to do what you say to a barista at a Starbucks. And I read that, I was like, well, I mean, that's America. Like, that's just like, we should put that on our flag. Um, and so as I hinted at the intro, I, I go back and forth uh, between this is something fundamentally new versus I'm not, I've been, this is not to excuse it, but to be like, well, this is who we are. Like we're Americans, like we've always been crazy. Again, indigenous American berserk. Um, or, uh, you know, Brad Pitt at the end of Killing Them Softly, which predates the pandemic when he goes, you know, this is America. It's not a country, it's business. Um, and yet what you've pointed at here, there is something fundamentally different. So I'm gonna close with a long, but very worthwhile quote from you from this article. Trust in government has suffered a sharp decline over the past 50 years, but a study by the Pew Research Center also found that Americans have lost further trust in other public institutions over the course of the pandemic. One solution for these ills is to encourage greater participation in civic life by idealistic Americans who want to do good. But such encouragement can't help but be undercut by the new norm that people working in, the, in a public facing job or in any role that might excite public interest can expect a potential torrent of abuse at any minute. Many, though not all, stories of health officials, election workers, and school board members inundated with threats end with the person at the center of the storm stepping back from their work in search of some measure of anonymity. Um, public service, in their view, is no longer worth it, as, as you alluded to a moment ago. And um, we now have the internet. It's easy to find people. It's easy to target people for harassment. And going, you know, that quote, I think, is in microcosm, the, the deepest, darkest threat we face from all the themes we've been talking about throughout this event today of distrust and demagoguery and populism that if the, um, the just good citizen Americans on the ground level that none of us have heard of who make our elections work and make our hospitals work and make our schools work decide you know, this is not worth it. We're in a dark, dark place. Um, and so closing out, uh, I'm leaving it in your hands, Quinta. Do you want to double down on that totally dark path I just went on? Do you want to try and end us on an optimistic note? It is up to you. I don't know if I can be optimistic. <laughs> I do think that, I mean, again, to go back to the, to the January 6th committee, I wrote that article well before the hearing started, but you, you see them touch on this point. Um, some of the witnesses that they brought, uh, uh, one uh, Ruby Freeman, who is an African-American poll worker in, in Georgia and her, her daughter, whose name I'm, I'm forgetting, um, spoke very eloquently and unmovingly about the harassment that they faced after they were identified by Trump and Rudy Giuliani falsely um, as having engaged in some kind of election manipulation. Um, and uh, the daughter had to step back um, Shay Moss, sorry, that's her name. Uh, Shay Moss had to step back from her work um, as an election worker, which she said, you know, she loved precisely because it allowed her to make ties with the community, help people out. Um, she couldn't do it anymore because of this harassment. And I think it's a really immediate and brutal reminder of the cost um, that this can have. Um, and especially, and I think it's worth pointing out, the, the cost to people who only recently have been able to participate uh, fully in American society. It's 
I don't think was was lost on the committee that these are two black women um, in the South testifying about a torrent of abuse they received at the hands of a white president um, and, and his allies. That is really hard. And looking at that story, it is hard to say, you know, if you're speaking to someone in Georgia in a similar position, would you really tell them keep doing this work? On the one hand, we need that. But on the other hand, the, the personal cost, as both Moss and Freeman testified to, is extraordinary and extreme. On the other hand, you know, I, I will say I've uh, over the last few years have had a number of conversations with folks who were in government and left um, under Trump for various reasons. And I a few years ago, I uh, had the opportunity to watch one of them speak to a, a class of students um, at Georgetown who were thinking about whether, you know, whether they wanted to, to go into government. These are all students at the School of Foreign Service. Um, and, you know, the, this former official was telling them, you know, I think it's still worth it. Um, this is someone who'd suffered an enormous amount um, under the administration, um, who had really sort of, I think, had their faith in public service tested. Uh, by by what had happened and who, you know, went out there and said, we need people like you, we need you to step up, you know, you should, you know, keeping in mind everything that happened to me, I still think that you should do this. And so, again, maybe, maybe we can, we can go back to, to Gramsci there, right, that there's the only way out of it is that kind of commitment, even though it's an extraordinarily difficult thing to ask of people right now. Quinta Jurassic. This has been an honor and a privilege. Thank you so much. Uh, follow Quinta's work at The Atlantic and on Lawfare, both uh, written and on the podcast. If there's anything I'm missing, please. That's most of it. Thank you. Okay. Um, I'm Corbin Barthold, Internet Policy Council at Tech Freedom. I really want to give a shout out to Tech Freedom. Uh, wonderful organization. Put on this event today. Put on this podcast right now. Um, the Tech Policy Podcast is the podcast of Tech Freedom. So please follow the podcast, uh, follow Tech Freedom on its Substack, Tech Freedom Weekly, follow Twitter, uh, sorry, follow Twitter on Tech Freedom, follow Tech Freedom on Twitter, um, and uh, you know, help us keep doing all the, the wonderful things the organization does, including conversations like this. Um, and you know, that's it from our, our Tech Freedom Policy Summit 2022. Until next time, thank you. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.